2: Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's Reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Raport on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast.
3: Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast.
4: From UFOs to psychic powers and government conspiracies, history is riddled with unexplained events. You can turn back now or learn the stuff they don't want you to know. A production of iHeartRadio.
5: Hello, welcome back to the show. My name is Matt. My name is Don.
4: They call me Ben. We're joined, as always, with our super producer, Paul Mission Control Deccans. Most importantly, you are you. You are here. And that makes this the stuff they don't want you to know. It's the most wonderful time of the week, folks. We are sharing correspondence from across the world from uh, our favorite people, your fellow conspiracy realists. This week's segment is uh, going to take us to some disasters, it's going to take us to the edges of the science of the mind uh because we've received so much fantastic correspondence about dreams uh we are also going to be diving into um several things that don't make the news the way they should um and, and just to just to lay out the land briefly here as we hurdle toward the end of the year, uh you may hear a few more. Uh, listener mail segments from us uh, as we get closer to 2022 um, I think is what the kids are calling it nowadays and that's going to be that's going to give us a little bit of time uh, to go do all the um, familial and social obligations that come at the end of the year Uh, and we hope that you enjoy them as much as we enjoy making them so with that in mind uh now that we're in the holiday spirit and um we're all very Alexa play the mountain goats or whatever um <laughs> let's 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 darken the palette a little bit more uh let's talk about disasters because there's so many that people just never talk about right uh, like you you might remember big things like pearl harbor you might remember uh disasters like chernobyl or whatever but it turns out that human civilization is just kind of a constant stream of things going terribly wrong.
5: Yeah, and to learn more about it, let's go to this anonymous person who left us a message. Good morning, afternoon, evening,
6: S-T-D-W-I-T-K crew, uh, whatever time you're listening to this. I grew up in a small, medium-sized mining area in northeastern Pennsylvania, And there were two critical events that happened that put an end to mining in that area. And uh, number one would be the Knox Mine Disaster. There was a mine collapse that flooded all of the mines in the area and rendered them useless. From there, in the 1930s, there was an event called the uh, Walter Mine Tunnel. So what that was was a a drainage hole that they opened up to, to drain these mines and it ended up getting loaded with toxic industrial waste that companies just kept dumping into, and it actually ended up being a super fun site, which was recently removed from the list. Definitely worth looking into. I think it would make a really interesting uh, episode, and I'd love to hear about it, especially have my small town of uh, Pittston and Old Forge reference. Feel free to use this in my voice on the podcast. Love listening to you guys. Keep the episodes coming. Thanks.
5: Yes. Anonymous person who lives somewhere in Pennsylvania. Uh, it's, it's so funny. When I start looking into something like this, I, I don't know why. I spend way too much time in Google Maps just to orient myself of the place where things are occurring, because I have no idea what any of it means, what any of the proper nouns mean, where they are, uh, what it looks like. So I ended up going here. And guys, the area where this anonymous person is from is right near Scranton, Pennsylvania.
4: Ah, yes, Scranton, which was like Joe Biden's catchphrase when he was running <laughs> for president. It's just like, exactly. Scranton, Scranton. Scranton was like a, it was like Scranton was a baby he had just had, and when you, it's not a political point, but when, whenever somebody has had a child recently, you know every conversation inevitably leads back to that, and that was very much uh, Biden and Scranton. Yeah, I'm not taking digs at the guy, but it's just like I thought for a second he might be being paid to mention it, like (sighs) every time, or what the campaign meeting was like, but uh, Pennsylvania is. As a beautiful place, we've got a lot of listeners in in that state. Um, This may be a story that a lot of people in Pennsylvania are familiar with, but I would be surprised if it's very familiar to a lot of people outside of the area. You know what I mean?
5: Very much so. It's kind of a local thing, although the specific disaster that this anonymous person mentions, the Knox Mine disaster, had a wide effect on the coal mining industry in general, Though, as I've learned, it wasn't like the thing that destroyed the industry altogether. It was a a large mixture of circumstances and events that caused coal mining in that area to shut down to a large extent. Uh, Right in this very, very specific area that we're talking about, it's called the Wyoming Valley. And if you look on Google Maps, you can search for Scranton. That's probably the easiest way to get there. And you will see this interesting... I don't know, it's kind of just a splotch, a a line of a splotch of civilization amongst a whole heck of a lot of trees, if you're looking at it from far, far above. And it runs from a place called Nanticoke, kind of in the southwest, all the way up to the northeast, to Carbondale, kind of Simpson, those are the the towns. And it is a really interesting thing to see on a map, and then to imagine that this place, it's... It's kind of home, well, much of Pennsylvania is, but this particular place is home to anthracite coal mining and that entire industry that existed in the you know late 1800s. I mean, it existed there even before that, but it was really thriving in the 1800s and the early 1900s, right before World War II. So this thing, the Knox Mine Disaster, occurred on January 22, 1959. It was a mine called the River Slope Mine in the Jenkins Township of Pennsylvania. It's also near a place called Pittston and another place called Port Griffith. That is probably the closest place to where this mine was located and what happened. So long story short, there is a lar- there are several large andesite coal mines that exist in this area that you can kind of see where the civilization is on the map. And the Susquehanna River runs right down alongside where, my, where mines are on the east bank and the west bank of that river. And the operators of one of these mines decided that they were going to illegally have their workers mine underneath the Susquehanna River. This is a large river, lots and lots of water flowing through it at all times. And when these workers did this, by the orders of their superiors, they unfortunately dug a little bit too close to the riverbed, and water started pouring into the mine. And the reason why it's a disaster is because that water flooded that mine system. And 12 individuals were were killed. They were drowned and locked in that mine. They were never recovered. Mm -hmm. And numerous others were trapped in the mine for a long time. Uh, Many of them did end up escaping, thankfully, because of the heroic efforts of one man. You can read about all of this stuff. If you search the Knox disaster, you can find a place called Pagan P A G E N Web W E B dot org that has a really nice write-up from an original article. It's very, it's rather short actually, but you can but you can read the original article there. You can also go to KnoxMineDisaster.com. dot com. That's where you can find uh, an entire documentary that was produced about this disaster about the effects that it had on the coal mining industry overall, and it even includes stories from people who were there, which is a, a fascinating thing. And that documentary was produced fairly recently, and it's, it's really great. I, the trailer at least makes it look really great and uh, heart-wrenching, actually. Ooh. I would recommend that highly. So what do you guys think? Uh, this Knox disaster, really, it's a story of workers Regular folks who were earning a living, doing their job, uh, pretty good living in the andesite coal mines around that time. Uh, They were just told to do something that they knew was probably not the right thing to do, but you do it or you lose your job, and many of them perished, and it really affected the whole place because those mines, guys, are all connected. The ones I was talking about, according to somebody I spoke with, I'll tell you about in just a moment, the mine systems from Port Griffith all along that Susquehanna River down to that place that I mentioned, uh, Nanticoke, those mines were all flooded because of this disaster. So it wasn't as though it was one small thing, right? It's Imagine a cave system getting flooded completely because of the decision of some manager somewhere.
4: Mm-hmm. Well, uh, first, shout out to, on a positive note, shout out to the one and only Amadeo Pancati. Uh, who is just as cool as his name sounds? I think that's the hero we're describing. He uh, he is a reason that uh, 69 people were able to survive, I and mean, he got a Carnegie Medal for it. But one of the things we have to understand about this disaster is that in this time, and this is preaching to the choir for people in coal mining country. Uh, in this time, uh, Matt, what you are describing is absolutely accurate they if they didn't do as they were told uh then they were kicked out of a job in an area where that was one of the <sighs> one of the only really solid jobs you could have at the time and so many disasters in the world of mining occur uh across the world you know because of safety standards they cut into the bottom line and then as uh, as the mine gets depleted there are increasingly dangerous methods to bring every last drop of ore out of it. Every last pebble, I guess, is a better phrase. Uh, And often, these things occur without consequences. So the good news to um, anybody who is just now hearing of this story is that there were legal actions taken against what 10 people. One of them was the mine superintendent. Uh, One of them, this was the most interesting part to me about this, you guys, one of them is a secret owner of the mine. His name is August J. Lippy. We're not going to keep him anonymous, right? Yeah, you he can er- imagine. He earned that, yeah.
5: Yeah, yeah, exactly.
7: One thing I know for sure is that is one haunted-ass abandoned mine right
5: there. Uh, well, so- it, uh, much of it remains flooded, and because they were never able to pump the water out, they attempted. They spent a lot of money attempting to pump the water out of there because this disaster affected 15,000 jobs. That's a That is... A number that's an estimate, right? But I get that number from the Anthracite Heritage Museum there in Scranton, Pennsylvania, from the curator, John Fielding. I spoke with him for quite a while, just learning about some of this stuff. And it, it really was a, a major thing, because it, when you think about the, the coal mining industry, it's not just the people who are in the mines getting the coal out. It's drivers, right, who are delivering that kind of stuff. It's people who sell the coal. It's other industries like that are attached to directly to the coal industry like the Petertons, um, yeah <laughs> yeah um, there's there's a lot right and uh, i would just highly recommend anybody who's interested you can go to www.anthracite that is a n t h r a c i t e museum.org and you can you can learn really stories of individuals as well as The industry as a whole, just like how that whole region was developed because of this one thing, basically, that existed there.
4: Yeah, I I have to point out, and I'm sure the curator pointed this, this out too, but for anyone unfamiliar with the area, this is only about an hour away from Centralia, Pennsylvania. You guys remember that? That's the uh, the place that is still literally on fire. It has been on fire since 1962. So just a few years after uh, the terrible events uh, that we're mentioning in in this part of the show, uh, it's it's strange because you know minors, miners, m i n e r s, are some of the hardest working people historically, and the health consequences can be pretty deleterious and damaging but um there's a there's a bit of empathy i think that too often gets missed when people talk about this industry it is people's livelihood you know it's it's not as if it's not as if you can tell these thousands of folks stop what you're doing you know and go what become a ping pong champion or something so the people who are working in these mines and have worked in these mines are very much not the enemy. They're just people who are trying to make a living. If you feel like um, the mining practices do need to be eliminated, which will inevitably occur, at least in the world of coal mining, um, if you feel those practices need to be eliminated, then the best way to bring that idea into a reality is to start at the top. Don't vilify the people who are, like, people don't wake up and say, I can't wait to go hundreds of feet underground. I am so pumped. You know, um, that's just a note I want to make because mining has really, mining has left permanent, uh, permanent effects on this mm-hmm. country and many others. Um, just don't think the average person is a villain. They're usually not. no.
7: I've been watching a um, series on Hulu, I think, called Dope Sick. Uh, it's about the Sackler family and, you know, the Oxycontin opioid epidemic and all that. And obviously a place that was hit very, very hard by that was West Virginia, which is a you know coal mining country. Uh, and one of the main characters in the show uh, gets in an accident um, in a coal mining situation and ends up, you know, addicted to Oxycontin. Um, So, I mean, it's a very inherently dangerous profession, um, not to mention the conditions and, you know, the long-term effects of, breathing in all of that, um, all of those materials. So, you know, you're absolutely right. Certainly not some would be someone's first choice, but people that are in that profession are very proud of it. And and there's often like multi-generational families um, that have, you know, mined for coal for for many generations. And so when you start to see that kind of legacy um, industry dry up, while it makes sense on a environmental level it's certainly sad and it's not like people are like you said ben it's not like people have some other option or they're like given oh sorry we're taking your your whole industry is gone but here's another option for you that's not usually how it works it's the same with like uh textile factories you know during the housing crisis you know literally dried up entire towns uh economies so you know Mm -hmm. it's very sad agreed
5: uh, I We have to end the segment, guys, just really quickly to hit the Butler Tunnel thing. You can learn about that as well. I would head to Greater Pittston, that's P-I-T-T-S-T-O-N, Progress. Uh, you, you can search for that, and you can find a story there titled Butler Mine Tunnel Contamination Revisited at Mining History Month Program. It's really interesting there. You can just read a bit about it. You can also head over to EPA.gov and see the story about how it was removed From the list of the nation's most contaminated sites, uh, which is very interesting because last thing, guys, if you are looking at that Google Maps and you follow the Susquehanna River north from Port Griffith, which is where the Fort Knox disaster occurred, you just follow it just a little bit north. You will see some weird orange red stuff coming into the Susquehanna River, and that is coming from the Lackawanna River. And that, if you continue following up the Lackawanna River to where it ends, is where the Butler Tunnel disaster occurred, where the dumping was occurring that is has caused the river to literally turn that color. According to John at the museum, that is actually what it looks like. It's not some trick of the satellite imagery or something like that. It's actually orange. The rocks are colored orange. And it's because of iron and other things that were inside these mines where other toxic materials were dumped or just left when a company shut down. And then when flooding occurs or when there's a lot of water coming through the areas and those mines get, you know, like runoff water basically in them, it flushes that stuff out into the river system. But according to the EPA, everything's fine. You don't have to worry about it anymore. And they're kind of right, at least according to their own logic and the readings that have been coming out of that area. It's still very striking to look at. All right, that's it, Anonymous Caller. Uh, We hope you have a wonderful day there in Pittston. And uh, we'll be right back with more messages from you.
0: A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the tonne.
1: Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm
8: Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpert.
2: It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us
8: thought they were going to kill me. So I kept my mouth shut and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims for a decade. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast.
7: And we're back with another message. This one comes from listener Anvil Alf. I'm trying to picture that. Is this like an anvil in the shape of of Alf, the cat-eating space uh, creature from from 90s sitcom fame? Did Mm -hmm. you guys watch Alf? Oh, yeah. What was this deal? What was, it? There was, like, was it Spencer? There was a nerdy kid named Spencer, or was that the dad? I don't remember. Anyway, I can't believe that show lasted as long as it did. Who, who, what was that pitch meeting like? What a fun idea.
4: I think there was a, probably a lot of cocaine. It's, I think uh, that's probably true. I mean, because his main, his main character flaw is that he can and will eat any cat. He eats cats. Ugh. Which he is kind of way for from a sitcom. L. Yeah. Pretty dark.
7: Uh, yeah. Yeah. Pretty dark. But it, it came out right
4: before Unsolved Mysteries which That's I think right. is it was yeah, kind it's of dipping your toes in this paranormal.
7: hundred percent. It was a nice segue. <laughs> it's one of those shows where it's like, it was a little too like goofy for adults and a little too adult for kids. And yet somehow it succeeded for way longer than I would have thought. Anyway, Anvil elf, right? Ty, Ben, Matt and Noel, I'm a longtime listener and fan of the show, podcasting show after show as I renovated my house here in Oxfordshire. Uh, Your big ticket shows are great, but I also find your views of current world news fascinating from your side of the pond, especially the recent political shenanigans in the U.S. Well-balanced opinions bouncing off each other in an entertaining way. Good job. Well, gee, thanks, Anvil Alf. That's very kind. He goes on. Back in the early 1970s, I was at university in Swansea, Wales. I started lucid dreaming. Um, It was great. Free entertainment every night. I could pick up on a good previous dream, steer my dreams, and wake myself up if things got out of hand. I knew I was dreaming, but brighter, sharper, more real than a normal dream. Not uncommon, but one of my favorite dreams was flying, breathing in to go up, out to go down, swooping around and around. So all good, I would regale my dreams meeting the duck people and such like to my housemates as we drove into college in the morning, uh, much to their amusement. This one morning, we drove into college as normal, found a parking place, not always easy. I ran into the lecture hall, got a seat in the middle, found my pencil, tuned into the lecture, then I woke up. Wow, that was odd. Not much fun there. So set off to college again, got into the lecture, found my place, lecture started, woke up again. Three times in a row, Groundhog Day. I then began to doubt whether I was awake or not at any time. I stopped walking along the nearby cliffs as I had massive urges to jump off and fly as I did in my dreams. But now I wasn't dreaming, was I? I was really freaked out. It was like my brain said, okay, you have fun at my expense. Try some of this. I switched off the dreaming by repeating, you will not dream over and over again in my head. I started lucid dreaming by repeating, I will dream. I will dream. For the record, I wasn't on drugs, just plenty of beer. Uh, For a long time, I didn't dream or remember any dreams, and now my dreams are the normal, fuzzy mix of stuff, uh, and I'm quite happy with that. Thought it might interest you. Use any you wish on the show. Props, cheers, Anvil Elf. I guess we just found
5: a uh, potential drawback of lucid dreaming, guys. Well, that's it. That is astonishing. And I've never heard that before. A 3x Groundhog Day style like scenario happening on repeat. Um, Wow. Especially with something as mundane as waking up, doing a regular routine, being at the place you're supposed to be at, then it happening again and again and again. That's weird. I mean, props
7: to uh, Anvil Alf for figuring out how to steer it and control it and, mm-hmm. you know, seemingly having such a handle on the whole process. I mean, that sounds fascinating and, and it would be a lot of fun. But I think, you know, some of the research into it that we've been talking about um, and also I think the last email that we got about lucid dreaming was, you know, uh, it led us to discuss how lucid dreaming and uh, night terrors or, you know, sleep paralysis were kind of two sides of the same coin mm-hmm. in a weird way that like, you know, the, the the sleep paralysis was almost a nightmarish form of lucid dreaming. This is somewhere in the middle. It really makes me think of like the F- Nightmare on Elm Street movies, you know, where the characters don't know they're dreaming until something kind of spooky happens. And then all of a sudden, you know, the audience is, is clued into the fact that they're dreaming. Um this, I don't know, like this would really wreck my brain and make me really paranoid uh, if uh, if this was happening to me. What do you think, Ben?
4: Uh, yeah, most reoccurring dreams or recurring dreams are, th- the typical scientific assumption is that they are revealing the presence of an unresolved conflict or a source of stress, which is why uh, so many recurring dreams are unpleasant uh this this uh idea they can recur multiple times in one sleep cycle, uh, you know, because you don't remember most of your dreams if you're human. Uh everybody does, the, the vast majority of humans tend to enter that state. Uh just uh not everybody brings those stories or those experiences back with them as efficiently to the waking world. So I would be interested, and the Alf to hear um to hear a little bit more about your sleep schedule and about how how you typically find yourself waking up, because most people don't sleep the solid eight all the time. You have these moments where you're a little closer to the waking world, and that's where things like lucid dreaming and sleep paralysis can occur. Uh, your muscle atonia may not all be all the way activated. Uh, so it may be that there was something in your subconscious that was very much bothering you and remember that part of the mind speaks in its own language with its own logic and syntax and it's all based on symbols and those symbols don't let dream dictionaries fool you those symbols are not necessarily universal they are culturally based and individually um accented like a language so you may have in your in your experience your brain may have been trying to tell you something, and now it's just a matter of sort of the other part of your mind decoding what the sleeping you was trying to, was trying to tell you. And yes, kudos to uh, taking agency over, uh, your, over your experiences. Um, I tend to think that a lot of people have recurring dreams. One thing that's interesting about this too and it's somewhat related is uh, I would love to hear from Anvil Alf and from you, Matt, and you, Noel, have you had periods of time where you find yourself waking up at a very specific, like a specific time? Like, you know, you go through a run of three months where at least once a week you're waking up at exactly 3.37 a.m., things like that.
7: No, that'd be weird, though. I've never really had any experience like this. Um, It's fascinating to me. And one of my favorite Musical artists uh, of all time, Richard D. James or Aphex Twin, um, he talks about experimenting with lucid dreams, but he's also a notorious troll with interviews and hates doing them and often just kind of like, you know, pulls the leg of uh, whomever's interviewing him. But he did specifically refer to using lucid dreaming in the creation of his album, selected ambient works volume two, which is like super, you know, like the, the title suggests very like, you know, dreamlike ambient soundscapes with kind of alien, you know, pitched vocals and just super bubbly, lovely stuff. Really great to fall asleep to. A handful of tracks though are more like <laughs> gearing you toward the nightmare side of things but he uh, specifically talks about um learning how to lucid dream, coming up with compositions in his dream and then forcibly waking himself up and then trying to recreate the compositions from his dream in the real world. Uh and Ben you've mentioned in the past, you know, the idea of um writers using lucid dreaming to kind of create, you know, imaginative scenarios as well. So I just thought this was a neat uh analog to that.
4: Yeah, and, and Matt, I'm so interested in that earlier question. Did you ever experience this, like waking up at the same moment? Is that- uh,
5: yeah, it, yes, definitely. Around 3 a.m. is when I generally will wake up. It, it's not a very specific you know, number, right, like 317 mm-hmm. or something. But right around 3 a.m., uh, always after, never at 2 something. It's always after 3 a.m. within give or take 15 minutes. Um, yeah, I don't know, but I've certainly never had this thing where it's like my daily routine. You know, like if you guys imagine us like waking up, driving to the studio, getting inside, sitting down with all three of us in the studio, we start rolling and then you wake up and then you do it again and then you wake up and then you do it again and you wake up until you, that would mess me up. I wouldn't know if this was an actual conversation or just my dream versions of y'all that I'm conversing with.
4: (laughs) Oh yeah. You got to wake up now, man
7: oh shoot you gotta have like a safe word you know like a like mm-hmm. a wake up word um that's what she, that's, that's what they call it that with uh, siri and other smart devices they a call it word. a wake word yeah. uh which is the word that you say that that causes the device to start listening <gasps> even though you know who knows they all the time so they're dreaming the whole time they're not they're them. in dream stasis yeah exactly sure uh, yeah. and they're potentially dreaming
4: of electric sheep mm. i would go cthulhu they're dead and dreaming, you know. It doesn't take as much as you think to wake them up. Just say the magic words. Ah, we're getting closer and closer to the Arthur C. Clarke quote, wherein uh, sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. So strange when you think about it that way. You're casting spells. with <laughs> That's what voice activation is. Uh, but yeah, this is... Uh, uh, Alf, you got to write back and let us know uh, if you have had some of these experiences that we're mentioning or we're exploring here. I do want to say this is not an imperative thing, but it would be an interesting experiment if you were to get yourself into that liminal state uh, between waking and sleep. That's when imaginations are super active and then try to take yourself back to that routine, right? And see how far you can get the story to go. That's one of the problems of Groundhog Day, right? He's trying to figure out how far he can take uh, this existence before the clock resets. Uh, also, shout out to one of my uh, favorite uh, underrated sketch groups, Chris and Jack. If you're listening, guys, uh, great job on your Groundhog Day sketch. Did I send that to you guys? I was really nuts about mm. those folks. Oh, it's great. It's great. Alf, you'll love it too. Chris and Jack, they're not paying me to say it. Chris and Jack, Groundhog Day.
7: Well, everyone, uh, Google that as well, and then we can all enjoy it together during this uh, commercial break. Then we'll be back with one more piece of listener mail.
0: A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the tonne.
1: Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
8: I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpert. It's
2: just a shame, you know, that they took him from us
8: thought they were going to kill me. So I kept my mouth shut and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast.
4: And we have returned. We're going to hear something pretty interesting that might be new to a lot of people from our pal, Skippy.
9: Hey guys, it's Skippy. You guys are good to use my voice on air. I live in southeastern Idaho. We have a place called the INL, the Idaho National Laboratory. And I've met a few people. I've even worked closely with a few people who who have either done work out there or actually work out there full time. Uh, They have offices in a a town called Idaho Falls. And the secrecy that surrounds this particular laboratory is almost as intense as Area 51. A good friend of mine was out hunting one bright fall morning uh, and wandered onto INL land he's in his full hunting getup and he was about uh about a 20 minute walk he didn't realize that he was on their land and 20 you know, 20 minutes after he crossed what they told him later was the line a uh darkened SUV big off-roading SUV pulled up uh some guys in security uniforms got out asked him what he was doing told him where he was escorted him off off the land and told him that if he uh did it again that there would be no warning that he would be prosecuted to the full extent of the law with no explanation as to why or anything like that and Then they got in the vehicle and left next day uh he got a phone call from he wasn't a hundred percent sure who it was that was calling him. They told him that he uh Basically, they just reiterated the same thing. They told them, you're not allowed to go back out there. If it happens again, you'll get arrested. I'd love for you guys to go into the history, because some of the listeners out there obviously aren't going to know the history behind this place, but I'd love for you guys to dig into it and uh, talk about this on air. The, The secrecy behind this particular national laboratory is intense. Again, my name is Skippy, and you guys are amazing.
4: Well, shucks. Thank you, Skippy. This is, uh, you were spot on about how uh, obscure this is going to be for a lot of people. And I would argue that is partially by design. Uh, before we dive in, Noel, Matt, had either of you heard of this laboratory before? I'm saying laboratory because it sounds fancier. That's the only reason. It sounds scarier when you say laboratory. It sounds like the way a, you know,
7: a Dr. Frankenstein might say it. Yeah, let's lean into I- it. Just say like <laughs> laboratorium.
5: I I want to say we encountered this a while ago when we were doing something on nuclear energy or nukes. Right. Uh, maybe yes. I'm wrong. I don't know. No, you're right. You're right. Yes. Okay. Established
7: by the uh, Atomic Energy Commission in 1949, as yep. a hub of atomic innovation in the United States, according the, to the uh, uh, Atomic Heritage Foundation
4: website. Right. Yeah, and I think I have a link there in uh in in our doc. If uh if you want to pull that up, he uh. So here's the deal. This place is part of the DOE, Department of Energy, and it is a huge deal to the U.S., and it's a huge deal globally. And they're messing with things that people literally don't understand, which is part of what research is. You know what I mean? They're not like the dwarves delving too deep in Lord of the Rings. Uh, They're they're working on very important mission-critical stuff for the future of energy. And if the world does say goodbye to coal completely, I'm doing a callback, guys. That's it's what you call it in the business. Uh, if coal is ever fully gone from the world, the Idaho National Laboratory will play a part in that. It has, uh, there, there were like 52 reactors there it's it, it has had the highest density of nuclear reactors on the planet uh, all but 3 were uh, i think eventually decommissioned so why why the secrecy if you go to their website there's something really interesting which is you can you know you can learn about the the history of the site which we'll get into in a sec you can learn about what they're working on now but some links on the website are dead the website links that pertain to national security do not work, uh, which, which is not a good look if you're trying to quell people's fears and suspicions. Uh, it has also been the site of, um, of a tremendous disaster. It wasn't until 2015 when federal authorities went public and admitted that in 1972, uh, radiation and chemicals probably killed three hundred ninety six people in relation to this. Uh, it's the kind of thing that if you are a foreign operator or sometimes they're called collectors, which is somehow even more creepy to me. If you're a foreign collector or operator uh, and you're a spy. This is one of like the top places on your tour of the U.S. And this is the kind of like the, the level of skill that these folks are functioning at becomes, in. I hate to say it, but it becomes inherently conspiratorial because so few people know how to do what these folks are doing. It's kind of like how AQ Khan almost single-handedly spread nuclear weaponry around the world. And they do, you know, they do important peaceful stuff, fuel cycle research, development, trying to make the next Iteration or the next uh, innovation in nuclear reactors, light water reactors. We talked about those before. Uh, shout out to, well, who was that, Halliburton. Uh, they also, they are working on cybersecurity. They're working on national security, working on nuclear non-proliferation uh, ideas. And that gets, that gets really sticky very quickly. You know, So this is a Tom Waits, what's he building in their situation. The truth of the matter is that it's very difficult to tell from the outside. And although the show is against censorship, I don't know about you guys, but I have to admit, you probably have to have it that way. You probably can't have, you know, somebody popping on Instagram and going, oh, no, we, we thought we knew what we were doing with the reactor. It blew up LMAO, uh, or <laughs> we've, we've made a new propulsion system. Can't wait to get this firework popped off. You know what I mean? Like, they can't talk about that and they can't publicize it and i would also posit skippy that in your friend's defense it doesn't matter what it was wearing you know what i mean like did the hunting gear help ah, maybe not maybe not uh but did the uh but would it have mattered if he was you know dressed as a stormtrooper or doing a naruto run or something like that it it doesn't <laughs> it, uh it's these places are have very, very tight security. I think uh, mentioned before, a good friend of ours on the show uh, went to Roswell, went to, went to Groom Lake with his brother on a road trip, and they almost got shot. They stopped at the sign where it says, you know, you can't go past this point. They stopped their truck, and they got out, and they were just looking around because when are we going to be here again? And that's when they saw the glint of what was probably a sniper scope and then that's also where they got uh, almost run off the road by a military vehicle, and they didn't even cross the trespassing line. So I would say be very, very, very careful with that stuff. And it's got a men in black situation, which is another cool part of the story, Skippy, although it is spooky, admittedly, for these other folks to come back the next day and just say, and just say, no, we weren't kidding. Like on the off chance, he thought, Ah, that's no big deal. I'm going to be back there again. I wonder how many people have been in a situation where you get a follow up like that because they I'm sure they did an extensive background check on the guy, too. You know what I mean? And if he had ever traveled to like Tehran in the past, the conversation might have gone differently.
5: Hmm. I completely agree. One of the only things that's really sticking in my mind right here is the size of the laboratory. Because if you, again, look, I'm sorry, I'm so Google-centric today, but Mm -hmm. if you search for it, it shows you this one lab, like it's clearly a large building that is a lab Mm -hmm. that is there in Idaho, in Idaho Falls, I think. Um, But on their website, they say they have an 890-square-foot laboratory, like whatever that means, 890-square-foot. And this person that we're hearing from, trespassed on land so i'm trying to figure out where all this square footage is right like yeah where actually is this place because i can't find it and maybe that's the point <laughs> yeah that's
4: that's kind of the point it's it's uh it's a different approach from the uh <laughs> from the windowless building in manhattan but it is supposed to it is supposed to be difficult to find and and it's important that it's there it's been it was originally an artillery range in the 1940s, and it, it predates the events of, of Pearl Harbor, but it makes sense to have something like that located where it is because it's not by the coast. It's difficult to get there. It's in the heartland, the interior of the country. Um, and if anything, it's kind of surprising that it is so public-facing and you can you know, go to their website and learn so much stuff about it because – because it seems like it could have been easy for this facility to be secret the way that so many other uh, nuclear research initiatives were conducted in secrecy. Like entire towns didn't officially exist. We did an episode on that. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know whether you can get a tour yet, Skippy, though I am going to give it the old college try. It's just amazing that they do so much stuff. Also, hybrid energy systems, robotics, nuclear waste processing, uh, bioenergy. I mean, what are they up to? All right, what what are they building in there? Uh, Matt, to answer your question, they do have a, a large desert location. Somewhere. <laughs>
5: <But> Somewhere.
4: <laughs> we probably well, don't want de- Skippy's friend to tell us.
5: Mm. Well, there's a weird, I'm going to call it a splotch again of mm-hmm. kind of a dark area near Atomic City out there and there is a place called Atomic City and I'm wondering if that's like a part of their thing or just something completely different. Uh um, yeah. That's it's just it's just to the west of where Idaho falls that area that, that Skippy was describing. Mm-hmm. I don't know, it's weird. Atomic oh. City.
0: <laughs>
5: yeah, it's a great name.
4: Uh and If you go to Atomic City today, I think there's like one store and a couple of rundown houses and the place no longer sell, even sells gasoline because there was a nuclear explosion in 1961 and most people got out of Atomic City. How fallout (laughs) is that? Yeah, it's big whoops. Um, But if you want to look at some of the more, I guess, sinister allegations, sinister by which I mean not unfortunate accidents, Skippy, but stuff that they're accused of doing on purpose by design, uh, I would direct your attention to the New York Times 2011 article uh, wherein they said that the Idaho National Laboratorium was instrumental in the creation of something called Stuxnet. So it's weaponizing nuclear nonproliferation. And Stuxnet, whew, Stuxnet was like a Lamborghini of malware, man. It was a it was a Mona Lisa of malware. It was, you know, an international an international initiative, but there is controversy. The New York Times usually gets stuff right. There was controversy because so the official statement of the INL is no way, Ted, we did not create Stuxnet. We, we are just trying to defend from things, d- defend the U.S. against things like that if someone else happened to build them. But the best way to defend oneself against things of that nature is to build the things, the, the offensive side of it, and
6: mm-hmm. then
4: just reverse engineer from there, right? Um, so I don't buy it. I don't know. What do you guys think? You think they're on the up and up? Is it like how uh, actors can't say when they have a cameo in a Marvel movie? until it comes out.
5: I think like Jeff, uh, but they always us. do.
4: They always screw it up. Yeah. At least do. Some of them too.
5: Oh my gosh, yeah. you guys. Yes. I, I have to tell you this. I, I, I think, I think there's stuff going on then to your, to answer your question that they just can't talk about. There's some weirdness because it's advanced energy systems as well. Like I, I know they have a clear focus on nuclear energy, but it feels to me that they've got other things maybe going on because mm-hmm. they, they they are directly involved with the Center for Advanced Energy Studies which is like a you know a whole bunch of different people doing R&D for that but they've got again I'm going to harp on it this whatever this 890 square mile thing is where they can just test stuff out and I was looking around on Google Maps this is my mantra for the day that I was looking around on Google Maps I found a thing called the EBR-II or 2 and the MFC they're out in the middle of this desert area that is pretty immediately to the West of the, the laboratory. And it looks been like that's where the stuff happens.
4: Mm, I see. It's where the nuclear sausage gets ground. Oh um, yeah. Yeah. You know what you, what else you might see here? Cause I was trying to find one of like the, the craziest things. And one, one story I found that really stood out and I thought, you guys, as fellow fans of cryptids, would be interested in this. There was a mountain lion, we can call it a cougar, uh, that was discovered in the area with a second set of teeth growing out of its skull. And this was not alleged. The animal was hunted, and someone got it. They bagged it, and they brought it in. And this uh, this is a pretty highly developed and very distinct kind of deformity. But it can happen with a lot of living creatures, uh, the I, I'm laughing because uh, this is this is almost like the three eyed fish in the Simpsons kind of situation because there are people that are convinced that radiation from the INL had somehow contributed to this. So radioactive critters are in the mix too. If you find the you know if you find the right speculative forums, hmm. I, I don't know. I don't know if that's the truth, because as we've seen, again, in like the Chernobyl example, uh, there's not, unfortunately, radiation, when it does cause mutations, it doesn't cause like the cool X-Men style mutations. There aren't any flying mountain lions. There aren't any mountain lions that can turn to steel or have laser eyes. Instead, uh, animals tend to, you know, get the short end of the stick, man. Um, I would also be. I, I I wanted to say that. Like, would you guys be concerned about living next to something like that? Absolutely. Like,
5: yeah, for sure. EBR, by the way, is Experimental Breeder Reactor, and mm-hmm. number two is the second one. Number one is just just down the oh. desert from there, and I would not want to live anywhere near where the first experimental reactors are being created
4: that's true that's true do you want to live in the testing site that's a really good point point. and they decommissioned dbr too i think but um but still it's uh if something goes wrong and you decommission the thing that doesn't automatically mean that it's fine to live there again and i don't think i'd want a second set of teeth i don't know about you guys i i think nope. it might be for some people but that's nightmare fuel for me
5: yeah no thank you have you but ever seen see the look
4: inside look. of a goose's mouth? That's gross. Yeah,
7: it's yeah, offensive. They have like, teeth on the roofs of the roofs of their mouths, and it's uh, pure nightmare fuel.
4: Yeah, I don't know why my takeaway from this story is now I find the mouth of geese offensive. I just it's it's wrong. You know,
5: shouldn't be happening. Wait, is that real? Are you guys? Oh no, yeah.
4: No, it's true.
7: Like their beaks, or they actually have teeth? Yeah, it's like teeth on the inside of their mouths.
4: Oh, Maybe it's God. swans. I think it's swans.
8: Ugh.
4: I, I no, think it's you. I think it's geese too. I think it's multiple birds. And now we officially are going to blame the Idaho National Laboratory for the entire thing. Excuse me, laboratorium. Uh, but this does this does put us in a great spot to highlight one of the profound dilemmas of this sort of work. Someone inevitably is going to do it. Would you rather it be you? or would you rather it be some other country, right? And it's, it's very much a devil-you-know situation. And it's very much a nimby situation, not in my backyard. There's, there's not really an easy way around it. That's why these things are often put in... That's why these things aren't always put in uh, bustling metropolis like Los Angeles or New York, but they're home to their own creepy stuff as well, as any long-time fellow conspiracy realist is well aware uh Skippy thank you so much for writing in we're going to maybe return to this in the future because there is a, a great deal of history uh, in in the world of nuclear proliferation in the world of nuclear research that remains untold in the modern day and it is often literally the stuff they don't want you to know so i suggest we pause the conversation for today we're going to be back very soon I can't wait to hear your thoughts on the stories that anonymous anvil alf and skippy himself shared with us today uh and tell us about the weird sketchy things in your neck of the woods we're sure they're out there uh we try to make it easy to find us online
7: you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube at the handle Conspiracy Stuff. You can find us at Conspiracy Stuff Show yes. on Instagram.
5: Yes, 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 yes. Remember that, YouTube Conspiracy Stuff. Go there. Check out the videos. They're so great. And if you want to leave us a voicemail just the way Skippy and Anonymous left, you can call one 833 stdwytk Please give yourself a cool nickname. Let us know whether or not we can use that name and your message on the air in one of these Episodes, and hey, you've got three minutes. Say whatever you'd like. We, we're just tickled to hear your voice. Thanks for doing it. And if you've got more to say, then can fit into that three minutes, please instead send us a good old-fashioned email. We are
4: conspiracy at iheartradio.com.
5: Stuff They Don't Want You to Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
0: A new season of Bridgerton is here.
2: Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's Reality
3: with me, Kibi Rappaport. And
2: me, Michael Rappaport on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast.
3: Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies.